This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. You've heard the president calling the virus the China virus because he first started hearing about it from China. Now, while the U.S. and European countries are still struggling to curb the spread, China appears to be doing much better. How have they been able to stop the virus while we are still struggling? And a couple tested positive for the coronavirus, yet they still flew to Hawaii. Then they got arrested over that. But can police really arrest you for being sick? Plus, a simple blood test might let you know if a vaccine will work on you. Also, the economy is still plugging along slowly with the unsettling unemployment numbers. But the worst may be yet to come. But first, let's start with the China question. Just about one year ago, we started to hear about a mysterious new virus in China. It was killing lots of people. And doctors were having a hard time figuring out what it was and how people were getting it. So let's fast forward now. That virus has spread, of course, all across the world. But while COVID-19 is hitting the U.S. and Europe hard, China seems to be recovering quite well. With us is Dr. Eric Fagelding, epidemiologist, senior fellow with the Federation of American Scientists, a doctor comparing the political systems, China versus the West. Are we just not systematically cut out for things like a pandemic? I don't think it's political system alone, because, look, Australia has done really well. Taiwan, which is a democracy, has done really well in South Korea and New Zealand, obviously, have done pretty well, as well as Vietnam. I think the key difference is the uh, social solidarity and combined with the trust in doing something in a mo- in an aggregate fashion and hunkering down in a difficult period in solidarity and and I mean by not just like lockdowns but also mask wearing in solidarity uh, uh, respect on ventilation air filtration. Uh, mass testing and patience and waiting at home while waiting for your results instead of going out and party and socializing uh, while waiting for your results. Like there's a lot of solidarity. And of course, contact tracing, the willingness to respond, pick up your phone and have some privacy, uh, you know, obviously um, introspected into your personal life to see where you've been to find everyone who has been exposed. All these things kind of add together. There's not one single factor. And in certain ways, if you move fast, you can get ahead of the virus. But if you move slow, sluggishly, inconsistently, you basically allow this very leaky ship to keep sinking. How do you get that buy-in, though, if it's not natural? I mean, I guess China and Australia could be different, right? If I'm in China, maybe I'm more afraid of my government than I am in Australia. But the Australians had more of a buy-in than, than arguably we have. Right. right. In certain ways, you know, the, the Korea, Australia, Taiwan, none of these are, you know, authoritarian governments, but they have this social trust, Singapore as well, is social trust and solidarity where you trust what the government says to you rather than say or trying to dis- have the country dismiss what the government is saying. And, of course, the government following science in the first place. You know, Taiwan uh, was very successful uh, and, you know, they have a vice president who's actually an epidemiologist from Johns Hopkins. And in certain ways, all these things 
This trust, the solidarity is so key because if you don't keep it together, this ship continues to sink. And the U.S., we also, you know, we have porous borders. We can't lock down our borders from each other. So even if we have certain states are doing great, um, it's like a sinking ship. We have 50 holes. We plug 40 of them. We can't bulkhead ourselves off from the other compartments that are sinking and the whole ship continues to sink. And that's kind of like what's happening here. Well, so, then, well but then that in a way kind of goes back to what I was sort of suggesting at the very outset, that that it, it almost sounds like like in this country we were, do, we were doomed to failure from the start because people weren't in large enough measures buying into the things like mask wearing and social distancing. Mm-hmm. And you can't just blame the federal government. Various state governments, as we know, have right, not really exactly. bought into it either. So it sounds like from day one, it was going to fail. Yeah, I think there's a many factors in American society. The incredible amount of independence and you know self-reliance. And uh, I think in certain ways, that allowed us to settle the West, allowed us enormous entrepreneurial prowess, um, while other countries have been somewhat more sluggish or less innovative. But at the same time, this kind of free-thinking approach in which no one wants to fall in lane and stay in lane allowed this mentality. And also, the uh, our U.S. government is kind of slow in terms of responding. You know, for example, in Taiwan, uh, and anytime someone would need to be quarantined, they paid for anyone's hotel to be quarantined for two weeks. No one, almost other than Seattle, when they first tried to do that in Washington State at the beginning, almost no one does that here, uh, not to mention contact tracing well or, or fast enough. It's just this, no one wants to get their privacy invaded to some degree. And I'm a big proponent of privacy, but it's just social solidarity. And say there's an outbreak in a nightclub, in, in Seoul, Korea, not they didn't just trace everyone who had a credit card transaction in, in, the, in the vicinity, but they basically traced everyone whose SIM card touched a local cell phone tower near the nightclub and basically tracked them all down and tra- traced them and tested them. We don't have that capability. Even if a governor wanted to do that, he, he or she could not do that in the U.S. Uh, for a v- variety of reasons. It's just our society is fractured and fragmented and so individualistic that it's it doesn't allow that and it's not an authoritarian government thing many democratic governments like taiwan and south korea new zealand clearly conquered it dr eric fagelding epidemiologist senior fellow with the federation of american scientists doctor thanks a couple from hawaii tests positive for covid the two hop on a plane uh, in san francisco even though the airport supposedly told them not to They landed back in Hawaii and were then arrested on charges of second-degree reckless endangerment. That raises some interesting legal questions. Yeah. Can people who get sick and go out on purpose face criminal charges? With us is criminal defense attorney here in L.A., Lou Shapiro. So, Lou, is this case just a weird one, or is there a foundation for criminally charging these two? Well, it completely makes sense. Uh, if, if you look at the Hawaiian code of second-degree recklessness that they were uh, charged with, it actually compares it to taking a gun and shooting it into a crowd. Uh, and that's the analogy here with COVID. They were told, do not go on that plane. You need to quarantine. And rather than doing that, they voluntarily and intentionally got onto the plane, subjecting all the passengers and crew uh, potentially to a 
to something that could cause great bodily injury and or death. So it does meet the elements, and uh, it's a very serious charge. And is that kind of the deciding factor? One of the big points of this is that they were instructed, do not do this, and they did it anyway. It's not like I was feeling ill and I went and somebody, you know, got it from me and, you know, something bad happened to them, but I didn't know positively that I was positive. Yeah, it's much different than, let's say, having some symptoms, having the sniffles and not testing when, when you know you have it, you tested positive, and you are told don't do that, uh, that's very egregious conduct. And if they don't have a record, uh, maybe they'll, you know, they'll get some mercy on this. Maybe there was a family emergency. Uh, we don't know why they felt the need to still get on that plane. And until we hear that, uh, what we have in front of us right now is not very good circumstances for this couple. Okay, so now let's uh, let's say Mike and I are prosecutors, and it turns out somebody on that plane died, and because they got COVID, uh, and now authorities in Hawaii, what do they do? They charge, you know, manslaughter, murder, and you're a defense attorney. What's your defense, counselor? Right, it could be upgraded to manslaughter, right? Because all that is is really negligent conduct that resulted in the in the death of another. Uh, I think on the defense side. Uh, one would argue that, well, it's a reasonable doubt as to whether this couple infected the victim in the case. Because COVID is so contagious and there are other people on the plane, there's no way beyond a reasonable doubt to prove that exact causation. Unless maybe this, vi- this victim is, was sitting right next to him in the row in front and back and no one else in that area uh, was positive. So that would be the defense on that one. There are other bugs people can have. I mean, you can get a bad case of the flu, and we know it's different from COVID. But, you know, I, I maybe I fly and I have the flu, and I shouldn't, but I do it anyways. Uh, you know, can I get charged for that? No, that, that's a bit different, uh, because the, what the code is really looking at is something that can cause great bodily injury. And, and a cold, uh, or even, even the flu, really, uh, you know, people are vaccinated for the most part, uh, and again, the flu, unless you, there's not like a test where, yes, you, you have the flu, whereas with the coronavirus, there is a positive test documented. That's a lot more egregious. Well, let's take the, uh, the people off the airplane. Last question here. And suppose uh, they go to work uh, and their employer has made it clear if you're sick, if you think you've got COVID, if you test positive for COVID, don't come to work. Same potential legal issues. Oh, meaning, yeah, meaning, does he, could the employee get prosecuted for coming to work and infecting others around them? Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. Yeah, it, it's not that different, actually. It's, it's no different, right? It's like taking that gun and shooting it in the crowd. You know, it could be problematic. Criminal defense attorney here in L.A., Lou Shapiro. Lou, thanks. A new blood test might be able to predict the effectiveness of a COVID-19 vaccine. Researchers at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston studied monkeys and found telltale blood markers that predict whether a monkey's immune system is prepared to wipe out incoming coronaviruses. Finding raises hope that researchers will be able to look for the same markers in people who get vaccines. With us is one of the researchers involved, Dr. Dan Baruch, who's a vaccine expert. Doctor, take us through what you know so far and then what it means uh, going forward. Well, thanks a lot. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, what, what we showed is that antibodies are critical for protection. We had suspected that, and many other groups had suspected that, based on correlation studies. But in a study that we published today, 
we really showed that to be true by purifying antibodies from convalescent monkeys that had recovered from COVID-19 and used them, the purified antibodies, to show that they can protect naive animals. So that's really direct proof that antibodies are protective. And that's important because we were able to look at different doses of antibodies and to show that antibodies protect in a dose-dependent fashion. And we were able to calculate the titer of antibodies, the levels of antibodies needed for protection. Now, as an animal study, we want to make sure that these findings are also true in humans. We don't know that yet. But if these findings do translate to humans, then it could be possible uh, to uh, eventually approve vaccines based on the level of antibodies they induce rather than large 30,000 or 40,000 person studies that need to be followed for actual COVID-19 infection. And that could accelerate vaccine development. Now, that's important because uh, we're, in, we're in a great position of having uh, two or potentially even more of as highly effective vaccines uh, start to be rolled out to the general public starting potentially as early as um, uh, later this month and then going into the winter and spring months. Um, but but uh, uh, if future vaccines could be approved in a much more rapid and simple fashion, that would be optimal. That would be ideal. Do, do COVID vaccines produce different kinds of antibodies than natural infection? Well, that's a very good question. Uh, so, so COVID-19 vaccines are really directed only against the, the key target molecule called the spike protein. And we think that those are the most relevant antibodies for protection. But natural infection does raise antibodies against other proteins as well. When it comes to how this could be a, a, a bit of a game changer in the, the research versus the way we do it now with the clinical trials, we remind people what, that the way the clinical trials work is that it's half and half and they have to wait all this time so people get exposed and some people get sick and that's how they figure out if, if what they've got works. But if you can do it your way, that means you're at the goalpost a lot quicker and people can say, okay, well, you know, we've got these two coming down the pipe, but the Pfizer and Moderna aren't going to cover everybody, so we're going to need more vaccines than this later on down the line. Absolutely. And what we want or what we would ideally have for the United States as well as for the world is multiple vaccines uh, because uh, we have over 300 million people in this country and we have over 7 billion people in the world. And uh, that's well beyond the reach of any single uh, vaccine supplier or even two vaccine suppliers. So we actually would like to have multiple vaccines that could be rolled out uh, during the year 2021 uh, as, uh, in my opinion, our best chance of beating this pandemic and getting life back to normal. The way clinical trials are being done now is called a placebo-controlled trial, which is the most rigorous way of testing something in medical research which means that a large group of individuals, in many cases these studies are 30 or 40,000 people, are enrolled. Half of them get the vaccine and half of them get the placebo. And then uh, we have to wait uh, to see uh, incidents of infection in both groups. Yeah, I was going to ask you, because I, I've mentioned before that I'm in one of the trials, so what do you do with the placebo group? 
So the placebo recipients currently uh, receive, uh, cannot receive the vaccine. And then once the trial reads out, in other words, once there's an approval for the vaccine, if it's successful, then uh, most commonly the study team uh, decides to give the placebo recipients the vaccine. I believe those decisions are currently being made for the Pfizer and Moderna trials in terms of how that will happen. I don't think there's a final, finalized form uh, of exactly how that will happen. Uh, but uh, I think we will hear uh, what will happen to the placebo recipients in the Pfizer and Moderna trials in the coming days to weeks. Uh, but the success of the first vaccines has an impact on how future vaccine trials can or cannot be done. For example, although uh, uh, the vast majority of Americans will not be eligible to receive vaccines this month, then it's possible there could be widespread availability of vaccines by next spring. And if vaccines are become widespread, then at that point in time, it becomes very difficult, if not impossible, to conduct placebo-controlled trials because uh, uh, people in general would, uh, would not uh, sign up to have a 50-50 chance of getting a vaccine if they could go to their local doctor or pharmacy to do so. So it is, it is likely that uh, placebo-controlled trials in the United States will be very, very difficult, if not impossible, to do come springtime. So the question is, how are those vaccines going to be tested? And um, if we have an immune marker that can be synonymous or predictive of protection, then it's possible moving forward uh, that uh, future vaccines could be licensed uh, based on uh, just safety and the types of antibody responses that are induced. Dr. Dan Baruch, Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. Countless Americans are losing jobs, but how is it possible for the unemployment rate to become lower? And if Congress passes the second stimulus package, when will we see the first check? Those answers when we come back. Many restaurants and bars are shut down across the country, leading to spiking joblessness in the service industry. But how is it that the latest unemployment rate ticked down? There are also some optimistic signs of passing another stimulus in Congress, but even if we had a deal today, Americans won't get their checks for another month. KYW's Matt Leon spoke with David Fiorenza, Associate Professor of Practice at the Villanova School of Business, breaking down the biggest economic questions of the week. Jobs and unemployment to start, uh, still plus 700,000 unemployment claims last week. Uh, We got the jobs numbers for November they were to the plus side, but uninspiring, 245,000, less than people had hoped. Unemployment rate did drop, and I'm going to ask you about that in a second. But overall, what are these unemployment, these job numbers telling you? Well, it's telling us that the economy is still plugging along very slowly, like a snail. Uh, we're, not, we're not diving down deep down into a recession. I think the fourth quarter is going to show GDP that'll be positive. But my concern, Matt, is next year, the first two quarters of next year, all the economic news that we're hearing now is now going to happen in next year to be some negative things such as GDP. And we're not going to get out of this quandary of having unemployment high at this point. Talk to me a little bit about the unemployment rate ticks down from 6.9 to 6.7, but almost universally, everybody's disappointed in the jobless numbers and we, or the jobs numbers rather, and we see 700,000 people filing for unemployment. How is it that the unemployment rate's actually going down? 
Well, what we've seen is the fact that they're hiring more full-timers and less part-timers, or those who are working three-quarters time are being added with more hours. It leads me to believe that a lot of the positions in restaurant areas, uh, things such as retail, uh, those are the jobs that are being cut down to zero, uh, especially as we have more lockdowns, especially as we're getting into wintertime, people cannot eat outside as much in the tri-state area. So you're not seeing that particular type of, of employment gaining. Uh, once again, broken record. I feel like we've been saying this for a month, but uh, still no stimulus plan. It does appear that there is at least some relatively adult-like serious discussions going on. But end of this month, a lot of stuff expires. You know, you're talking eviction bans, uh, uh, a lot of the unemployment for gig workers. I mean... Do people appreciate, and I've probably asked you this question almost word for word, how bad things could get in a matter of weeks here that are in positions of power that make decisions? Well, this is a good time to bring this up again, because as consumer spending started to slow in October, that shows me that that people are starting to lose a little bit of confidence. It also shows me that people may not have the funds looking forward. As you said, the end of this month, a lot of people, millions, will be without unemployment. In fact, in the state of Pennsylvania, I think it was about 11,000 people uh, were asked to pay some of their unemployment numbers back after they were sent unemployment in error. Uh, So you're seeing that the end of this month is crucial. And you're right. It's not just for unemployment pay, but it's also how are we going to pay those bills in January? Rent, mortgage, car payment, student loan. We can go on forever, you and I, Matt, on this particular subject. And I mean, even if today, and this is another thing we've talked about, they got a robust deal today, it's still going to take weeks to get a lot of this these mechanisms moving, no? I mean, and if we wait another week, it gets worse and worse, and then everybody goes home for Christmas. Like, time's been of the essence for months, but time is, uh, it's, it's incredibly important now. It is, Matt. You're correct. You've been correct in the past on this. There is more of a lag when it comes to fiscal policy than monetary policy, meaning that the Federal Reserve can implement something very quickly, whereas the federal government, there's that time lag by the time they implement something, by the time they go to the the SBA, Small Business Administration, or other areas, the Treasury, to get checks out to people. Even though all of our names and addresses are on file, it's still going to take time for that to to get to to the public. My concern is if we get past December 10th, I don't think you'll see a check in the mail or an ACH in your checking account until the first, second week of January at the earliest. Find us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Stay well.